Acts chapter 16 is where we are uh, this morning. Last week, um, we looked at the importance of identifying bad theology in, in your own life and how to avoid that to, to some degree. And we talked about how uh, the costs are high if you don't identify uh, improper theology, bad theology, that, that there can be some significant costs to your walk in Christ. Uh, and in fact, uh, for some, it can lead us uh, to uh, a place to where we're not really in a relationship with Christ at all. Not that we lose our salvation or anything like that. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I'm saying is that sometimes when people start out in the wrong place, uh, they never really recover uh, from that in terms of their relationship and their walk. And we talked about how the benefits are great of having uh, good theology, of dealing with bad theology and, and having proper theology. Um, and I challenge you with some basic steps to grow in your understanding of theology. Theology is not something that uh, we spend a lot of time on uh, in today's culture. Um, people are more about how things feel, about the experience they're going through, than uh, actually what's being taught nowadays. That's, that's just kind of the, the movement of our culture. Uh, but there are some real benefits, and it's very important that, that we do learn to understand God correctly and relate to God correctly and, and understand who He is and who He calls us to be. And so um, it's a significant part of our walk and a part of our ministry. This morning, I want to go to the next step, and that is uh, how do we develop the proper attitudes? How do we develop the, the proper skills to identify what bad theology is? What, what can we do in our life and in our experience to, to be able to identify it. And if you remember last week, I talked about how bad theology is kind of on a spectrum. There's that bad theology that, that's just kind of a little bit off. You know, uh, we, we all have that, you know, I would suggest in moments. We have those, those times where uh, we don't exactly express things perhaps the way we want to, or perhaps it's more of a, a cultural thing where we're kind of bent or shaped uh, in certain ways. To, uh, to outright heresy. And we talked about how heresy is where you're advocating something, you're teaching something that moves you out of really fellowship with how God has revealed himself, fellowship with how the church has understood who God is. Okay, And so there's that wide spectrum, and, and how we respond to that wide spectrum is vastly different. You know, If someone's just got something just a little bit off, you, you might gently correct them if you're going to correct them at all. Um, uh, but you're, it's not something you want to break fellowship over. It's not something you want to uh, to you know uh, ostracize somebody over. Whereas if it's heresy, we need to speak boldly. We need to speak clearly. We need to uh, address that. But today, what I want to deal with is one of those uh, that theology that's kind of in the middle. It's theology that sounds right. It's theology that 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 seems to be on the right track, but it's really not. And I would say this is probably where a lot of the problems arise in churches today, with Christians today, whether it's uh, who we advocate for on uh, on Facebook or social media or, or other means, or or whether it's people that we choose to listen to in terms of their television broadcast or their radio broadcast or their podcast or whatever it is. Um, there's a lot of theology out there that sounds right, but when you dig a little bit deeper, you come to discover that it's really not. And that's kind of where I'm aiming, that's where I'm targeting this morning in terms of how do we identify bad theology. And for that, I want to look at a story that at least the second part of the story is, is very familiar to us. Uh, the first part 
uh, we don't generally spend a lot of time on, but I think it's a very important uh, reflection, very important revelation from God in terms of dealing with uh, this sort of theology. Beginning in verse 16, uh, we read about Paul and Silas who are, uh, at this point, they're in Philippi. Okay? They've been ministering there. They, they've had their interactions uh, with, uh, with Lydia uh, and so forth, and, and they're moving through uh, the town itself. Uh, and this is, this is what um, we discover. It says, once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. And as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. And Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the Spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, bringing them before the chief magistrates. They said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes, ordered them to be beaten with rods, and after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the innermost prison and secured their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because we're all here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction it offers, for the clarity it brings. We thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself in, in mighty and powerful ways. And God, we just pray that you would you would bless this time this morning as we look at this text. Help us each to grow in our understanding. Help us each to grow in our appreciation of you and of your word. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So you have Paul and Silas and, and probably Luke. Luke's probably included here at least for part of this as he uses the word we and he is the author of the text. They're moving through Philippi. They are preaching. Uh, they're proclaiming. They're they're carrying out their ministry, and they encounter this slave girl, it says. And she comes up behind them, and she says, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. Now you hear that, and you think, all right, free advertising. Okay, this is our chance. You know, this is, this is, a, this is a girl who's recognized in this town for being able to identify certain things, be able to tell the future and, and those sorts of things. And, and she's walking around and she's pointing to Paul and Silas and to this group and she's saying they are the servants of the Most High God. And it sounds right. And in a sense, obviously, it is right. They are servants of the Most High God. They are servants of God. But Paul 
Now, my translation says he was greatly annoyed. The, the sense here is not, oh, would you just shut up? That's, that's not the sense of what he's saying here. He's not, oh, I can't take this anymore. Somebody just quiet her. That's not the sense of the word, actually. The sense of the word is more a, a disturbance. It, it's, it's more of, a, a, of, an, a, a, of being upset, uh, um, disturbed by what's taking place here. It's very similar to um, what you saw with Jesus at several times where it says he was sore amazed, where he, was, he, he experienced something and, and it troubled him greatly. That's the word here. It's not really that Paul's just annoyed with her. There is something much deeper going on here. And Paul turns around and, and he rebukes the spirit that's within her, removes it, and, and moves forward. Now, in this exchange, I believe there are some, some lessons to be learned here about how to identify what appears to be a good message as actually a bad message. What are some things we can look at and, 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 and apply in our own lives to help us discern the truth here? And I think the first of these is, what is the purpose of the message that's being shared? I think that's the first question we need to ask. What is the purpose of the message that's being shared? What is, the, what is her purpose here? Her purpose here is not to proclaim the truth of who God is. Her purpose here is not to spread the gospel. Her purpose here is not to, to help Paul and Silas in their ministry and, and in their outreach to Philippi. That's not her purpose here. Her purpose here is what? Well, Luke tells us what her purpose here is. Her purpose is profit. Her purpose is gain. She is connecting herself to Paul and Silas in their work and ministry here in the hopes of being able to also glean some of the profit they may gain as they get converts, as they get other people there. That's her purpose. That's her intention. And we know that because it goes on for several days and 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 the the... Uh, individuals that were over her, who owned her in this context, would not have allowed her to continue to do what she was doing if there wasn't profit involved. So it's no doubt that as she proclaimed these things and she amazed the people with her insights and with her perspectives, that people were saying, oh, you know, let me bless you. Let me, so that you may bless me and that sort of thing. And today, a lot of times when we encounter people on social media, podcasts, in the pulpit, on TV, and in other times, their purpose really isn't to glorify God. Their purpose really isn't to, to see God glorified and magnified and, and to see people changed and transformed into, into agents of, of, of God and, and agents of, of change in this community. Their purpose is to build their name. And you see it play out in terms of how they, they twist things or, or sometimes what they omit. You know, there, there's an awful lot of, of preachers and, and well-known individuals who, who just completely omit the whole notion of sin. Just completely omit the whole notion of responsibility before God. And, and why? Because that's not a popular message. That's not a message that people want to hear. And, and so if we leave that out, then what? People are going to like us a little more. And you see them as they interact, you know, in interviews and other times, you know, people, what are you, what's your position on this? Or what do you believe about this? And, and they always skirt the issue. They never get to the heart of the reality that the biggest problem humanity faces 
is sin. That's the biggest problem that's at the heart of, of all that we do and all that we encounter. Every social issue, every reality that we live in is grounded in the presence and the reality of sin. And so we, we, need, to, we need to ask, okay? And, and this takes time because you're not necessarily going to be able to do it the first time you, you hear somebody. But watch them, listen to them. What is it exactly that is their purpose and is their goal? The second thing that we need to do in terms of discerning whether or not it's a good message or not is to ask the question, what does the message actually say? Okay, what is it that they're actually communicating in, in what they have to say here? The woman's words, if she were saying these words in Jerusalem, they'd have a far different context and meaning than if she were saying, than where she's saying these words here in Philippi. In a pagan world where you have uh, so many uh, different gods, so many different uh, beliefs and understandings and perspectives about God, the, the, expert, the ex, uh, expression most high God has a totally different meaning than most high God if it were expressed by a priest in Jerusalem and so forth. It, it, it means something entirely different in a polytheistic setting. Okay, To say most high God in a polytheistic setting is to say what? The other gods are legitimate too. The other gods are, are, are here too. This one just happens to be, you know, right now a powerful one, a, 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 the most powerful one uh, amongst them. Okay. Also, her, her phrase, <laughs> who are pointing to you a way of salvation, again, this is a, a common term in the Roman culture that, that's not usually uh, the meaning found in Juda Judaism. Okay, It's not redemption from sin. The salvation that she's espousing, the salvation that her crowd would have been listening to, would have understood is not what Paul and Silas were proclaiming. That you're lost, that Christ died on your behalf, and that he rose again in power. And because of that, you can find new life. You can find salvation. You can find eternal hope. That's what Paul and Silas are proclaiming. But she is, in their context, saying something very different. And this is, this is a favorite, I believe, one of the favorite um, methods of Satan in bringing confusion. Just look at his interaction with Jesus and the temptations. Okay, Everything... Satan said to Jesus in the temptations, it's true. It's true. Okay? He quotes the scripture that God would not allow any, any harm until that moment, you know, to, to fall on his Messiah when he tempts him to jump off. He's quoting scripture there. Okay? He, he, he's talking, he talks about the power that Jesus has to turn the, 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 the stone into bread. Jesus had that power. He had that ability. And there's nothing wrong with feeding people or feeding yourself. There's nothing really wrong with it. Okay. Everything he said was true, but not completely true. And so because it's not completely true, it's ultimately not true. He twists it just a little bit. He bends it just a little bit. Just enough to lead us away from who God would have us be. What God would have us do. We see this in, with certain groups in, in our culture and so forth. Um, Mormons. 
Okay, if you talk to a Mormon, they will tell you, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe Jesus is necessary for salvation. They will say those sentences. They will express those words. They'll even say, look at our church name. We are the what? The Church of Jesus Christ. And they'll say that. And what? They're moral, upstanding people? They're people who you look at and you say, man, they got their family life together. They got, they, they, they're, they're committed to their churches. They're committed to you know, our society and our culture and those sorts of things. And they're saying on top of that, Jesus is the Son of God. That, that all these other things. But they mean something very different than what we mean. They mean Jesus is literally the Son of God. That God came down and had sexual relations with Mary and the offspring of that was Jesus. That's what they mean when they say Jesus is the Son of God. They mean that when they talk about Jesus is a, a part of salvation, they mean that, that as you do your works and so forth, Jesus is there to, quote, help you with that. And he's the model for how you do those kinds of works. That's what they mean. Okay. So they use the same language, but they mean something very different. And it's not just those sorts of groups. We find this within the church. We, we find this with, within, uh, within uh, sermons that, that uh, sometimes come from, from people that, that we respect and trust. They take the words that are used and, and they, they twist it just a little bit. Sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. But in any case, it results in a bad theology being presented. And we need to be aware of that and, and sensitive to that in how we respond. So what is the purpose? What does the message actually say? And then third, what does the message actually accomplish? What is the fruit of the message that's being shared here? In this case, in Paul and Silas's case, the, the, it was annoyance and confusion. The people were confused about what was going on and who this person was and so forth, and, and Paul was, again, overwhelmed. He was moved in his spirit against this situation. Sometimes the, the, the result is something of that nature. It's something internal. The spirit speaks to you, and there's just a, an unsettledness in terms of what you're hearing and what you're experiencing, and you realize there's just something not right here. You may not necessarily be able to identify it, but the spirit moving in your spirit, and you, and you, you just realize this is not something I need to be a part of. Sometimes it's more overt. You, you, you see people uh, saying things, doing things that really, again, don't reflect the will and the heart of Christ. We have a lot of, of today in, in churches, we have a lot of advocacy of individualism, of being able to do our own things in our own way, the way we want. And while it, it rings true to us uh, on some levels, when they talk about the freedom in Christ, or they talk about, you know, that I, I serve God rather than man, and those sorts of things, while it rings true on some levels, the end result is what? It, it's rebellion against things that God has told us to be submissive to. We need to be mindful. We need to look at these things. We need to ask these questions. And it all begins by developing a proper attitude. 
The reason Paul and Silas are able to respond here is because they were in the right mindset. They were, they were thinking through the right things. And as we, we look more at this passage, I think we can learn, again, some attitudes that we can develop to have necessary discernment. The, the first thing I think we see in this passage is patient and prayerful consideration. Okay, Paul let this go on for days. Why days? Why is why is he why did he wait days before he responded to her? There's probably several reasons. We may not even be able to identify them, but I would argue that he was in prayer and in patient consideration of what was going on. He wanted to make sure, again, given the, the, the confusion of the language that's being said, the words that are being said, he wanted to be sure he was in the right place before he responded. One of, one of my um, faults is that um, I, I'm an information hound. I, li- I like to gain things. And when something goes wrong, I, I like to reach out and, and try and, uh, and try and identify what's going on. And, and I'm, sometimes I make assumptions that are not healthy, that are not appropriate. I need to learn how to be patient, to let those things soak in, let those things rest. And I think most of us, we need to learn how to be patient and listen to, to understand what's going on rather than just jumping headlong into it and responding based upon just how we feel at that moment. And then prayer obviously directs us in terms of getting that clarity. We talked about that last week. The second thing, we need to make sure that our own motivations are right. What are our motivations in responding to this, quote, bad theology? responding to these things that we've heard and responding to these realities that we're faced with. We need to realize that at the heart of what we do, it must be God's fame, not ours, that we're concerned about. We need to realize that it's God's truth, not our pet issue, that should drive our responses. We all have those things that that kind of make us twitch, you know, when we hear. You know what I'm talking about? You hear it, you encounter it, and you're like, oh, oh, that makes me so uncomfortable. But just because it makes you uncomfortable does not necessarily mean that it's something you need to respond to or engage or to, to, quote, correct. As you prayerfully and patiently consider what you're encountering, we need to ask, God, make sure that as I respond, if I respond, that I do so to your glory, for your purposes, to your fame. Let the, let the end result of this encounter be that people and hopefully that person I'm dealing with, are drawn to you, not to me, not to my knowledge or to, to my insight or to, to my perspective, but to you, God. At the end of the day, help me to be drawn to you as well. Help you to be my motivation. Third thing, we need to know what our mission is. In American culture, American church culture. We've we slipped into the mindset of quote winning souls. And, and let me be clear here, I am very much driven by a desire to see people one to Christ. 
it, it, it's, it's, it's the heart of our mission to see people come to Christ. But when I look in Scripture, when I look at the interactions, even this interaction with the Philippian jailer and so forth, the goal is not just to get them to, quote, pray a prayer. The goal is not just to, to quote, win their soul. Our goal is to make disciples. Our goal is to see a total transformation. Our goal is to, is to see that person ministered to and helped and taught in every aspect of their life. We don't want people who, quote, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, get dunked, and then the very next week, you don't see them again in church for the rest of their life. We don't want that. That's not what Christ has called us to. Christ has called us. The Great Commission is what? Go and make disciples. It's the only imperative in that entire sentence. Everything else is used to define or explain that imperative. Make disciples. That's our call. And so... As we look at our mission, okay, that needs to be our priority. The girl here interacting with Paul and Silas, she may have helped perhaps short term. She may have gotten a few people to, to listen to Paul and Silas. She may have gotten a few people to say, oh, let's hear what they have to say. But on the long term, in the long road, she's what? She's causing people to, to link the relationship with Jesus with the fortune-telling that she's doing. She's causing a, a syncretism to take place here. She's a, a syncretism, a, a mixing of good theology and bad theology, which ultimately ends up with what? Bad theology. And we see this so often in the church. We, we do new programs or new designs or new, new things to, to, quote, get people in the door or to you know, win them over or whatever. And the methods we employ, the things that we engage in are not God-honoring. And so, yeah, we got them in the door. And we got them to, to um, acknowledge Christ, so to speak. But we did so in a way that they're now mixing things that shouldn't be mixed. And entertainment becomes the priority instead of glorifying and honoring God. And, and um, these other perspectives become more significant than living a life that makes a difference. We need to know what our mission is. We need to be clear on that. Fourth, we need to be respectful, even in the face of opposition. As you continue uh, reading in this passage, um, there's, a, there's an interesting interaction that, that transpires. Uh, obviously, we're familiar with the jailer. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and his family were baptized. He brought them into the house set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. And when daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, 
They beat us in public without a trial, although we were Roman citizens and threw us in jail, and now they are going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them, and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters, and departed. Paul here refused to leave without proper permission. He refused to leave the jail without uh, appropriate steps being taken. He was what? He was respectful of their rules. He was playing by their rules while still what? Not sacrificing respect. His respect for them, their respect for him. There is a, a disciplined mind at work here in terms of, of his response. And there's a discipline that we need to develop to, to be respectful when we deal with people with whom we disagree, with whom we believe are, are, are teaching faulty religion and perspective. Too often we get bombastic or we get, we get to the mindset to, to where we're just going to, we're going to uh, apply a, you know, a fire hose to something that requires a, a little squirt of water. We need to develop a respect for the culture in which we live. One of the things that we are suffering from right now is everybody has lost respect for everyone else. We've lost that otherness in our minds. But also notice that, that Paul and Silas, what, they continued to minister to the people at Lydia's house, to the people that had been won over. They did what? They were discipling. They discipled this man, but in terms of, of the baptism in terms of meeting with him, in terms of instructing him. They just they discipled the people at Lydia's house. They were respectful of the situation and responsive to it. But ultimately, I believe, as I said last week, the, the answer is in dealing with bad theology, it's listening to the Holy Spirit's lead listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us when opportunities present themselves. And I think we see that in two places here. Two places here that I believe the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul and Silas that made a big difference in this. The first of these was in their initial trial. They're brought before the magistrate, says that they're accused of these things, the, the crowds against them and so forth. It, according to the text, all Paul would have had to say is, we are Roman citizens. And the whole trial would have stopped. The magistrate would have realized there's nothing we can do about this. Because as Roman citizens, they had rights, they had protections, they had all these other things that were available to them that would have prevented them from being beaten, would have prevented them from being jailed, would have prevented the, most of this from happening. So why did they stay silent until later? They stayed silent until later because I believe the Holy Spirit was leading them to realize that something was going to grow out of this. And as believers, I think it's so important for us to, to remember that our rights are not as important as being obedient to God. We become a culture that's all about our rights. You have no right to tell me to do this. You have no right to tell me to do this. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. That's become our mindset. When our mindset should be, what would God have me do in this circumstance? 
How would the Holy Spirit have me respond to this situation, to this call, to this challenge? Do I, at this point, need to put aside, quote, my rights to see God glorified, to see God praised, to see unity achieved? Is that something I need to follow through with? Is that a direction I need to go? The second place I think we see the Holy Spirit is in the fact that Paul and Silas had what? Had the chains fall off their feet? They had the doors of the prison wide open? They could have walked right out. Could have walked right out that door. Left Philippi and never looked back. But if they had done that, where would the jailer and his family have been? The jailer would have committed suicide. His family would have been destroyed. But because they stayed, because they listened to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they were able to see that man and his family led to Christ. They were able to to further their work there in Philippi. And so I think it's important, again, when we engage with this this bad theology and engage with these individuals and and try and, and bring correction that, first and foremost, we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit how he'd have us respond, where he'd have us be quiet, to sit in that jail cell or to sit in that situation until the time was appropriate to respond. We need to to practice these things. We need to practice the patience and the prayer and and our own motivations and and be clear about our our missions and, and respectful to those that we engage. But most of all, we need to be sensitive to the spirit that dwells within us. At the end of the day, all of this discernment comes down to one reality, and that is, what is our relationship with Jesus Christ? Does the spirit, in fact, dwell within us so that we can listen to him? Have we responded to Christ's offer of salvation? Have we asked the question, that the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Have we come to believe, as is described here, in the one true God? Putting aside our own idols, putting aside our own quirks and our own perspectives, and relying and responding to the truth that there's only one way to salvation. There's only one hope for life. There's only one future that lay before us, and that is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ, in becoming disciples ourselves. And a disciple is what? A disciple is simply someone who follows someone else with full commitment to that other person's desires and directions. Is that who we are in relationship to Jesus? Is that who you are in relationship to That's what he's calling us to today. And that's the starting point for gaining discernment. That's the starting point to gaining life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your role and your place in this church. I thank you for these individuals. God, I pray that you would would continue to, to minister to us and through us, to this 
to this community. Help us, Lord, to be a people who are practicing discernment in what we listen to and what we advocate and what we participate in. Help us to be a people who are mission-minded, but that mission being making disciples. Help us to be a people who truly reflect your love in how we deal with the culture, with each other. You told us they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. God, may that be our testimony. Go with us today and help us to live lives of discernment. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.